If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. It's probably been your experience if you are one who has read through the Bible or even significant portions of the Bible repeatedly that you have found there are about 20 or 30 significant themes that run from Genesis to Revelation. They, they appear over and over and over again, that very often they are developed as, as the Scriptures move on and more revelation is given by God from the beginning through till the end. And one of those central themes, one of the most important themes that runs throughout the entirety of the Bible is the theme of the glory of God. And although God is seen as glorious from the opening verses of the Bible, the glory of God as a, a kind of visible phenomena, something that you could see with your eyes, really begins to be developed around the book of Exodus. It's actually in response to the cries of Israel, you'll remember, as well as his promises to Abraham, that God triumphed over the false gods of the Egyptians and brought his people to himself into the land that he had long ago promised to Abraham. But how would they know which way to go? How will they know how to get to this promised land that they had never been to, having been raised in captivity in Egypt? Well, God said that he himself would guide them. He would cause a, a pillar of cloud to go before them, leading them in the direction that he would go. And it was not long after God redeemed them, rescued them by, by this plagues and by, by working so, so heavily upon Pharaoh's heart that he could not help but tell them to, to go and allow them to even plunder the nation as they left. It was not long after that that Haro's heart, Pharaoh's heart rather was hardened even more as he contemplated the loss of the firstborn throughout the land, and he sent his army to go and to destroy Israel on their way out. And yet his army was stopped, we are told, as that same pillar of cloud that was leading Israel now engulfed the army of Pharaoh, leaving them disoriented and in panic, preventing them from destroying Israel and actually causing them to be swallowed up by the Red Sea through which Israel had just passed safely. It's an amazing thing. And later in Exodus chapter 19, we see this manifestation of this thick cloud directly associated with the glory of God. It is, it is said to be the glory of God. As they approach Mount Sinai to receive God's law and enter into covenant relationship with Him, that they might be their people and He might be their God. The Lord says the people are to consecrate themselves, to make themselves holy, to wash and be purified because He is going to descend upon them in the thickness of the cloud on the mountain. And in fact, in chapter 19, verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you. And you may also, and they may also believe you forever. And God, in fact, does the very thing that He says. He comes down and He begins to give them the law. In response, Moses is instructed to build an altar at the foot of the mountain to offer a sacrifice there and to confirm the covenant between Israel and the Lord. And then God calls Moses further up onto the mountain. He says, in chapter 24, Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring flame on the top of the mountain and the side of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And when he came down after only having been gone 40 days, receiving God's law, one of which said, there shall be no other gods besides me. He found the children of Israel 
with false gods, having fashioned them from the gold with which they plundered Egypt. Moses in his anger and his rage at seeing the, the, the stupid, the foolish, the stubborn hearts of the people smash the tablets of the covenant that God had given to him. It was not long later that Moses set up a tent outside the camp of Israel for God would not dwell in the midst of a sinful people. And it was at this tent of meeting that the glory of God, again, the thick cloud came and resided whenever Moses would go in to speak with the Lord. And it was here that Moses pleaded with God to forgive Israel, to not cast them off here just after he redeemed them, but to continue to be with them and to be patient with them and to lead them into the promised land. God agreed But Moses wanted more. Moses also asked that he might see the fullness of God's very glory. Because he knew that he had been called to lead this stiff-necked people, that they were going to be a problem. In the midst of 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 their boneheadedness, in the midst of their stubbornness and their sinfulness, Moses wanted a vision of God that would be so all-consuming that he would be able to persevere in faithfulness even when he was surrounded by faithlessness. Of course, as many of you know, God says, you you cannot see me in the fullness of my glory. Nevertheless, come back up on the mountain and I will shield you as my glory passes by. Moses, we are told, rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai just as the Lord had commanded. In chapter 34, we read that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. On the mountain, God gave Moses another set of tablets of the law covenant, reiterating again the commands that he had already given. This time, however, Moses didn't simply come down with the tablets. There was a a greater lasting effect on Moses, not just spiritually as he wanted, but physically as well. The text says that when he came down, the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And the people found this utterly terrifying. I imagine we would too. If if you all bowed your head and closed your eyes and went to the Lord in prayer and after the prayer you looked up and my face was glowing, I think you might be a little bit afraid or come up and wonder what the parlor trick was. But they knew it was no trick. That The face of Moses was itself radiating. It was beaming like a divine sunburn with the radiance of God with which he himself had seen. In fact, so terrifying was it, they made, veil, they made Moses veil his face while he was talking with him. And yet when he went in before the Lord in the tent of meeting, Moses would take the veil off. Eventually that glory faded from his countenance, and it was not long after that the people constructed a tabernacle as God had told them. A place where he would meet with them to accept sacrifices and offerings. And we're told in Exodus chapter 40 that once this tabernacle was complete, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not even able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What was God saying? God was saying, this is not only a place where I will receive sacrifices, where I will receive offerings that we might enjoy fellowship. I am making my very presence known with you now and forevermore in your midst. It was a great blessing to the people of Israel. And yet decades later, as a result of the people's sin, God allowed the Philistines to defeat Israel in battle. Fearing a further defeat, they brought out the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle. The Ark was this gold overlaid box with 
uh, images of angels bowing down. And it was, in fact, on the backs of the wings of those angels that the glory of God made its presence known. It was there within that ark that the tablets of the law were kept. It was there that the blood would be poured on top of the mercy seat. Symbolically representing that though God was looking down, seeing the law, looking out and seeing the broken law of that the, that the people had done in their sin, that the blood was covering over and making atonement for their sin, ensuring their forgiveness that he might dwell in their midst. But at this point, the ark became nothing more than a magic talisman. And so against the wishes of God, the people went into the tabernacle, took the ark out and took it with them into battle, believing somehow that it would cause them to win. And yet, failing in faith and obedience, God allowed them not only to be defeated, but for the ark to be taken. The daughter-in-law of the priest who was pregnant at the time, shortly after this defeat gave birth to a son and was told what had happened, and she named him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. She was making a pronouncement on Israel that the glory of the Lord had departed their midst because of their sin. It was a word of cursing upon Israel. Eventually, the people would repent, and the ark was recovered and restored to the tabernacle. And later when David looked out and saw the great palace that he was in compared to the mere tent that the Lord dwelt in, he said, this isn't right. The Lord should have a bigger house than me. But God said, it's not for you to build this because you are a man of war, but your son will build it. So David gathered the materials. He received the plans from the Lord and Solomon, his son, then brought everything together. And he did so in a way that pleased the Lord. And so we're told once more that the the cloud of God's glory came down and filled that place, that temple, that permanent structure, just as it had the tabernacle. And there it remained for generation after generation, representing God's living presence among his people. The brightness and the cloud were a sign of God's majestic transcendence and power and ruling over and protecting and forgiving his people. It was a wonderful grace to them. And yet once more, the cursing of Ichabod came upon them. For though they for a while dwelt with faithfulness before the Lord, they increasingly continually turn their backs on him, even worshiping false gods. And so in Ezekiel 10, the prophet has this vision of the glorious presence of God slowly moving up, as it were, off the Ark of the Covenant, the angels coming to life and bearing it on their wings as they slowly leave the the, the, the temple and go off back to heaven. God's glorious presence would no longer dwell in the midst of a people who so continually and defiantly rejected all of his words and his ways. They had broke the covenant, though God himself was a God of enduring love. And the sad thing is the glory never came back. Eventually the temple was rebuilt. It was rebuilt smallly at first by Israel, then amazingly beautiful, in an amazing beautiful way by Herod. But we never read again of the glory of the Lord coming and filling the temple as it once had. For hundreds of years, Ichabod was still the curse upon Israel. Now all of that is a brief summary of 
this theme of the glory of God. And it's important because it stands in the background of every single verse that we will read from Luke's gospel this morning. And what we see here is a word of immeasurable hope and grace, not just for God's people then, but for us today as well. You'll recall that for several chapters now, Luke has been pressing home this question, who is Jesus? Who is he? Who is he that can do all these things? Who is he that can offer this kind of teaching? Who is Jesus? And here we see God himself now answers the question in a definitive way. So I invite you to follow along with me as I begin reading in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. <coughs> now about eight days after these things, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he had said. (coughs) And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. May God bless the reading of his word. Not long before this, in fact, just around a week before this, Peter had rightly identified Jesus as the Christ of God. And as Jesus explained further what that meant, he said, verse 27, right before this, there are standing here those who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And in fact, it was not long before that word was fulfilled even here as they began to see the fullness of the kingdom of God in all its glory. And today we also want to get a glimpse at that glory of God's kingdom as we think about this passage. As we seek to understand and apply it to our lives, what we want to behold is the glory of Jesus himself. We want to see once again how God brings his glorious presence to bear through the person of Jesus Christ. And we should do that because if we see it rightly, if we see Jesus' glory the way that we're supposed to see, then everything else will pale in comparison to it. There will never be a problem that is too big. There will never be a sin that is too weighty. There will never be anything capable of shaking our confidence in him. Therefore, by seeing Jesus' glory, we will be willing all the more to worship him as God, to trust him as Savior, and to follow him as Lord. So what do we see of Jesus' glory in these verses? Four things. First, we see the glory of Jesus' stunning appearance. (coughs) We see the glory of Jesus' stunning appearance. This is how Luke sets the whole scene And what is to follow? He says about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of Jesus' face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. You know, when Moses, we just said, when Moses came down from the mountain the second time, his face was shining. It was reflecting the glory of God, much like the moon reflects the light of the sun, but it didn't keep going forever. It it began to fade in its intensity. 
It's kind of like when you look directly into a bright light, a light that is too bright, and you look away, and even when you close your eyes, there remains that spot on your eye, burned temporarily into your retina. And at first, if it's a particularly bright light, you may feel like, I'm never going to be able to see without this spot again. But eventually that spot begins to fade, your eyesight becomes normal again, and you're very thankful for it. Such was the fading glory of Moses. But notice the contrast here. There is no external source of glory that shines onto Jesus. There is no glory that comes down and reflects off of him. There is no temporary flash of lightning or flame or any external source of glory. No, the glory emanates from Jesus himself. One minute he looks as if he, the way he always looked, and then suddenly he begins to glow. He begins to, to light up, as it were, to shine with his dazzling white appearance, the very glory of God beginning to shine forth from within him. So, so what is happening here? The, the theologians call this Jesus transfiguration. But frankly, that's not all that helpful. That just sounds like a fancy word that makes this scene important. We say, oh, he was transfigured. What does that mean? What does it mean that he was transfigured? Well, think about a, a, a traditional wedding where all of the people are gathered, they are assembled, and the, the, the keynote begins to play, the back doors open, and this, this woman in dazzling white shows up at the back of the church, but she has this thin veil covering her face. You, you know who it is, but you cannot clearly see her. And as she begins to come up at the right time, the veil is pulled back and the fullness of her beauty is seen for all of the congregation assembled, not least of which her soon-to-be husband. Very much so, this is what is happening with Jesus here. His glory has always existed. Nothing new is happening to Jesus. Nothing is being added to him. It's simply that his glory was veiled. His glory had been obscured by the humanity of the incarnation. And now for these few fleeting moments, that veil, as it were, is being pulled back just a bit. The glory with which Jesus has always had, has always existed, and is now being seen by those around him. So while the glory cloud in the Old Testament was an amazing, powerful representation of God's glory, here Jesus reveals He is God's glory. He doesn't just reflect it. He doesn't just display it. Jesus is the glory of God. That's exactly what Hebrews chapter 1 says that many of you studied earlier this year. It says that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And so Luke is making it abundantly clear for all who have eyes to see. Jesus is more than a man. He is more than just a human savior. He is God in the flesh. He has no need to simply reflect the glory of God. He is the glory of God. Jesus is not simply near to God. Jesus is God. And so for these few fleeting moments, again, these disciples gain a glimpse of this on the mountain. At the time, it says they didn't tell anyone about what they saw. But later, after his death, after his resurrection, as they think back to, to all the time they spent with him, those three, three and a half years, suddenly it clicks. This is what we were seeing in those moments. And if we understand this, <coughs> if we understand his, the, the, the reality, the truth behind his stunning appearance, that will not be hard for us to understand what comes next, and that is the superior adoration that Jesus receives. The glory From the glory of Jesus, we see his superior adoration. The glory of Jesus' superior adoration. 
I think it's both somewhat humorous and incredibly sad that every time you find Jesus praying in the Gospels, the disciples are always asleep. Uh, Jesus constantly going off to pray, hey, come with me, pray with me. I mean, now we would kill for that, wouldn't we? Jesus, let's, we're going to have a private prayer meeting with Jesus. I, I'm all in, right? Um, and they're like, you know, uh, just, just out like a light. And sometimes even coming and saying, can't you pray with me? Can't you pray with me? They're like, sure, sure, sure. And then their head's hitting the rock as they, as they continue to snooze. And, and you can imagine... You can imagine being this guy's. I mean, you know, we're, we're used to being in our, in our bed with, uh, you know, nice dreams of sweet sugar plums dancing in our head. And, and, but, I mean, this is first century. I mean, they have no problem dozing off in the middle of the woods on a mountain here. But just as when you're asleep and someone flips on the light, and if it's bright enough, it penetrates that thin veil that God has given us in our eyelids, and it begins to stir us, it begins to wake us up. So if my kids have slept in miraculously on any given morning and we decide for them to get up, I need simply turn on the lights and suddenly there are grimaces, there are uns and moans, and I know they're being roused from their sleep. So imagine being on the mountain and suddenly Jesus begins to glory up. Jesus begins to transfigure. That, that, that light switch, that 60-watt bulb you don't like in the morning, magnify that by about a 1,000. And you have no idea imagining uh, Peter and James and John suddenly arousing from their sleep. And in fact, as they're finally awake and their eyes begin to focus and they begin to realize what is taking place, we're told that Peter and those who were with him were heavy with, with, with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Who were these men? Luke says that as Jesus transfigured on the mountain, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish. Now, I read a passage like that in like about... Twelve questions spring to mind immediately. Top contenders are this. What is going on with Moses and Elijah? Where, where have they come from? What have they been doing? What did they look like? How did they recognize that it was these two guys? And where are they going to go after this? And the reality is the Bible really doesn't answer any of those questions. Firmly. Now, we can go to the rest of Scripture to make some really good guesses and inferences, but, but there's no clear questions about those things. And part of the reason why, for Luke, it's not important. He's not concerned with answering those things. He has his own agenda. He has his own intention of telling us about who is here and what it means for us. So who is here and what does it mean for us? Well, we've already been introduced to Moses this morning. He was a man, you'll remember, who was rescued by God in his infancy, rescued from death, called to lead Israel in the wilderness, encouraged in faith by God through his experience on the mountain. He is the leader above all leaders in Israel. If there is ever someone that, that, is, that is called to shepherd the people of God in the Old Covenant, they are, they are measured by the standard of Moses. There, there is none that was like him before, and there was none that came like him after. Then there is Elijah. If Moses represents the law of God, because he was the one through whom the law came to Israel, he was the great lawgiver, then Elijah represents the prophets. He was the prophet who prayed and it stopped raining for three years. He is the prophet who challenged the false prophets of a sinful king and won as he simply prayed one little prayer and God sent down fire from heaven. Elijah was the one who prayed and God raised someone from the dead while he himself never died. 
God simply said, it's time for you to be with me. It is time for you to be with me. And one minute he's there, and the next minute a chariot of fire driven by angels comes down and swoops him up and takes him to heaven. I don't know about you, but if I had my choice, that's the way I'd like to go. Such was the case with Elijah. He then becomes the standard, the prophet above all prophets. And we even see that in the New Testament because uh, is it not the case that when just before this, Jesus asked the disciples, who do the people say that I am? They said, well, maybe it's, maybe it's Elijah. Why? Because he was taken up literally to heaven and his appearance was promised that he would come again. People didn't quite understand that that was... <coughs> not literal, but figurative, that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. But Elijah was this towering giant. He was the prophet by which all of the prophets were measured. Both of these men, Moses and Elijah, representing all the law and the prophets, towers in Israel, even in Jesus' day. You think about all that these men accomplished in their lifetime, all the things that they did for God. But notice when they appear, they're not talking about any of that. They're not talking about anything that they did. These two men, verse 30, were talking with Jesus and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Probably a hundred years of life and ministry between the two of them. People who forever shaped Israel and even the world today in which we live. You go to, you, you, you go to the, 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 the house of parliament in Canada's capital and what you will find is a statue of Moses as the giver of the law. Even today. And what is arguably one of the most secular cultures in the world. But they're not talking to Jesus about their accomplishments. They're not talking to Jesus about what they did. They're talking with him about what he did. Throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New especially, you see that one of the ways that all of the Old Testament is spoken about is with this simple phrase, all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets. And that's exactly what we have here and Moses and Elijah, all of the law and the prophets, bearing witness to him. What Jesus accomplishes is superior to Moses in every way. It is superior to Elijah in every way because he is actually fulfilling the law and the prophets. He is the one that their very lives and ministry and words point it to. And so J.C. Ryle can say Moses and Elijah were the king's servants, but Jesus was the king's son. Moses and Elijah were planets, but Jesus is the son. They were witnesses, but he is the truth. This is how Luke wants to draw our attention away from everything else, that even the, the very good things and great things and glorious things that God has done throughout redemptive history and fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. God's very Son, God's chosen one, our very Savior. And in fact, this is the accomplishment this is the accomplishment to which they are speaking. The, the accomplishment of salvation for sinners. And so this morning, just like Moses and Elijah were transfixed, their eyes were set upon Jesus and his glory and what he was going to accomplish, so should ours that he might have superior adoration above anything else in our life. But what did he accomplish? Well, it was a saving accomplishment. This is the third thing that we see. We see the glory of Jesus' saving accomplishment. <coughs> Luke says in verse 32, men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, what's this departure? What are they talking about here? Well, on one level, it simply means death. It's a euphemism. It's a nicer way than saying 
his death in Jerusalem. And even we talk about this way, don't we? We say, my friend passed away. Or if it's a believer, we say that they went to glory. The the point is, Jesus is going to die at Jerusalem. But understand, this was not simply fate. This was not a declaration of the facts, as it were. This is what is going to happen. No, it says that Jesus would accomplish something in his death. They were talking about, verse 31, his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, usually death is not something we do, but something that happens to us. Right? It's it's not anything that that we accomplish. So what's going on here? Well, although the New Testament was originally, you remember, written in Greek, uh, none of us really need to know Greek to understand the Bible today. We live in in an amazing and and, uh, blessed age of Bible scholars that know Greek and Hebrew are able to give us reliable, excellent uh, translations in English. Uh, by which we can clearly understand the Bible and its teaching. Compare that to when the first English Bible was being written. If you remember from church history, that was William Tyndale. He was thought to be only one of three men of all of England who could read biblical Hebrew. Now there's probably about 30,000 men in this country alone who can read, read biblical Hebrew well enough to produce uh, an English translation. We live in a blessed time. Nevertheless, sometimes it is helpful to know he, uh, Greek or Hebrew because it gives a, a shade of meaning that's hard to come out in English. And such is the case here because Luke is using a play on words. Luke is actually giving a pun and it's hard to catch in English. Now you say, what's the pun? Well, the reality is you may actually know, might know more Greek than you think. Because, because when, when Luke talks about Jesus' departure, the word that he uses is exodon. They were talking about Jesus' exodon that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Now what English word does that sound like? Exodus, right? That, that, that's, not, that's not hard to miss, is it? So, so what is he saying here? They are saying that his death is more than just a death. Moses led Israel in exodus from the bondage of slavery in Egypt where they experienced life and freedom in covenant fellowship with God. And when they forgot that salvation, when they forgot that redemption, the liberation that was won for them by the Lord, Elijah was called to preach to them, to remind them, this is who the covenant God is. He is the one who redeems you from Egypt. Do not turn to false gods. Turn back to him. Believe and live the way he wants. And so what, what they are saying now, what they are beginning to understand here, is that Jesus is not just going to die, he is going to bring about a new exodus. That's what he's going to accomplish through his death. Through his death, Jesus would, would be a ransom for the liberation of his people, not from, not from a, any physical, political entity, but from their sins. So just as the Passover lamb was offered, its blood covering Israel to avert God's wrath, in judgment on Egypt, so Jesus would be the perfect Passover sacrifice, covering people with his own blood to avert God's wrath that was going to fall on them because of their sin. Jesus would be the firstborn son who dies that sinners who deserve death might be be considered as firstborn sons with God. Jesus would die, drowning in the waters of God's wrath, that his people might pass through them unharmed. Jesus was going to accomplish a new exodus through his death. That is the liberating work that was coming through the cross, through the atoning sacrifice that was made, freedom from spiritual slavery to sin. 
the righteous in every way, Jesus would die as a sinner so that sinners might be freed from sin to be counted as righteous before God and made righteous by God. As we consider the glory of Jesus' stunning appearance and what that means for us, as we consider the glory of Jesus' superior adoration with which he deserves, as we consider Jesus' saving accomplishment for us, our response to that is seen in the glory of Jesus' sovereign authority. This is the last thing that we see this morning, the glory of Jesus' sovereign authority. You can imagine at this point the stunned expression of Peter, James, and John on this mountain somehow... We don't know how, but somehow they knew who was in front of them. They knew it was Moses. They knew it was Elijah, all standing arrayed in glory before Christ himself. And suddenly the unthinkable happens. Moses and Elijah begin departing from Jesus. The whole thing, Peter feels, is coming to an end. And and who would want that? I mean, if you're there in the midst of that, you would want that to continue. So he says, verse 33, uh, to Jesus, Master, it is good that it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And Luke comments, not knowing what he said. Peter thinks, look, let's, let's keep this thing going. Come on, we can build some tents. We can stay here forever. And we can understand the impulse, can't we? But, but what we can also understand is that Luke, rather that, that Peter didn't understand the, the problem with this, why this was contrary to everything that he was experiencing right then. Luke says again, he didn't know what he was saying. So what was he saying? Why was it wrong? Well, at least two things. First of all, by building the tents, three tents, Peter is putting Jesus on equal footing with Moses and Elijah. If you've ever seen uh, a a movie, particularly a a film poster that's being promoted, and it has a number of of box office stars, a lot of big names who would often carry their own movie, but now they're all together, one of the things you'll notice very often is that on the movie poster, all of their faces appear on equal level and all of their names exactly side by side. Why? Why? Because usually the person who gets top billing, the person whose name comes to the top is the recognized star of the show. They're getting paid more money than anybody else. They're the ones that people, that, uh, the studios suppose, are, are, are coming to see in this film. It is their film. And so sometimes you will actually have, when there's big stars, you will actually negotiate in their contracts. How high is my name going to be? Uh, how, how long will it stay on the credits at the beginning or the end of the film before we see anybody else's name on here? And essentially, that's what Peter was doing here with Jesus. He's saying, look, there's one tent for Moses, and there's one tent for Elijah, and Jesus will even build you a tent here too. The problem is, Jesus is never on equal footing with Moses and Elijah. Jesus can never be put into a pantheon of multiple gods. Jesus can never be equal with anyone, because he himself is God. We've just seen that. The glory is emanating from him. Moses and Elijah are bearing witness to him that he will never be equal to him. No, he was there to, not to consult these men, but to be worshipped by them. That's why Peter didn't know what he was saying. But secondly, Peter didn't know what he was saying because if they all stay on the mountain and the very thing for which they are giving glory and inquiring with Jesus about would never take place. His saving accomplishment, God's plan for Jerusalem would never come about. How can he accomplish this new exodus by his death and bring salvation to Israel and the world if they stay there on the mountain? It would be to thwart the very plans of God. Thus, as Peter was saying these things, we read in verse 34, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. 
And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and no one in those days, they, they told no one in those days of anything that they had seen. So Luke's been asking this question, who is Jesus? And now God answers, he is my son, my chosen one. Now in calling him the son, he is saying more than he is divine. If you go back to the Old Testament and you look at sonship language, it is almost always a title of kingship. So in Psalm 2, God says, you are my son. Today I have begotten, begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He's writing to David as king and to every other Davidic king who would ever reign. And yet we see a greater fulfillment now in Jesus Christ, the true son who is going to truly rule and reign with justice and authority over all the nations of the earth. So Jesus, in being called the Son, is being told He is the King. He is the King of all kings, the King with absolute sovereign authority. But notice He's also the Chosen One. He's also the Chosen One. This is a title also used of David, but it was most often used in the prophets to speak about, to speak about God's servant. The one, namely, that Isaiah talks about in five songs, a suffering servant, by, by whom God will redeem his people from their sins. He says, this is my chosen one in whom I delight. And so what is our response to this chosen one? What is this response? Well, our response, what should it be to the son of God? Verse 35, listen to him. Listen to him. By implication, that means don't listen to the world. Don't listen to your friends. Don't listen to your family or false teachers if they contradict Jesus. Listen to him. Listen to God's anointed. Listen to God's very son. But how do we do that? How do we listen to Jesus? If you're at all online and into theology blogs, you know that there is in part a whole huge raging debate over a conference right now. And at the heart of it, in part, is this very question. How do you listen to King Jesus? But what I find incredibly interesting is that later on, Peter will actually reflect on this very moment in his life. He, he's writing his second letter to, to the, the churches. And he says what I think is probably one of the most astonishing things in all the Bible because it runs completely contrary to our natural order of thinking. I mean, we read this passage and we think, I wish I could be there. I, I, I wish I could have seen this. And we may even be tempted to think, if I had been there, if I had been on that mount, if I had seen Jesus transfigured, then it would make me a better Christian. I, 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 would, I would find myself more magnetically drawn to Christ, ready and willing to do whatever he says, as I sh rightly should. But in his second letter, Peter writes about being on the holy mountain, as he calls it. He writes about seeing Jesus receive honor and glory from the Father, hearing what he calls the voice of majestic glory called out, call out, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Peter, Peter is in some sense giving his bona fides. He says, as an apostle, we were there, we saw this, it was glorious. But now, he says, but now we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention. Do you see how astonishing that is? Peter says, it doesn't matter if you were on the mountain. 
It doesn't matter if you saw his glory in the transfiguration. It doesn't matter if you were enveloped in the cloud because now you have something more sure, not just an experience. You have the prophetic word. You have the word of Christ himself, the scriptures. Therefore, you would do well to pay attention. How do you listen to Christ? You listen to his word. You take up and you read. And in doing so, by the spirit that he gives us, you read in faith and you know, I am listening to my sovereign authority. I am listening to Jesus Christ. Last week, the Australian broadcasting company aired a panel discussion on the topic of dangerous ideas. And they had this cross-section of panelists from every, from various areas of life and, and, and frankly, uh, three of them at least, various areas of uh, sinful degradation and wrong-headed thinking. But this was the final question they asked all of them. Quote, which so-called dangerous idea do you think would have the greatest potential to change the world for the better if we're implemented? The answer of the other, of three of the pan, three of the four panelists ranged between the absolutely profane and the ridiculous. But Peter Hitchens, brother of the famous atheist Christopher Hitchens, spoke with wisdom into the midst of the world's foolishness. As a believer, here's what he said, quote, The most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead, and that is the most dangerous idea you will ever encounter. Because it alters the whole of human behavior and all our responsibilities. It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place in which there is justice and there is hope. And therefore we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It alters us all. If we reject it, it alters us all as well. It is incredibly dangerous. It's why so many people turn against it. He couldn't be more right, could he? In fact, this is the very thing that Luke wants us to see. Do do, do you see what he is saying to us? Jesus has just said, I'm going to die on a cross. And in response, you by faith should take up your cross and follow me. Why would we ever do that? God comes and says, because Jesus is my son. He is my anointed. He is the one worth living and worth dying for. He is the one losing everything for. He is the one worth denying yourself for because of him, because of him, there's no one else like him. There is no one equal to him. There is no one greater to him. This one, this Jesus is the chosen Messiah. My own lips as God. God's own lips have spoken it. He is the son of God. He is more important than anything. He is more important than everything. He's big enough. He's important enough to overshadow everything else in your life. Everything else. Therefore, stare at his glory this morning. Look to this passage. Look throughout the rest of the gospel of Luke. Look throughout the rest of the scriptures and stare at his glory, adoring him with a superior adoration above everything else that you would love or worship. Submit to his authority by listening to him and by obeying him. Him who saves you from your sins and brings you to God. Father, we are thankful that in Christ we no longer We no longer live under this word of Ichabod for the glory, your glory, unimaginable glory has returned in Christ. 
Father, we are sad that so many did not see it in his day. And yet I pray that we here today, we will see it. We will behold his glory and we will understand the amazing, magnificent thing you have done for us through him. God, we pray that in, in staring and being very trans, having our very hearts transfixed on him, we will find ourselves changed in living in light of that glory. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen.